Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is Dan Taylor. My name is John Micton. Join us twice a month at the International Schools Podcast as we have conversations with international school leaders, educators, and entrepreneurs working and engaging in the world of international schools and education. And finally, just to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, Asa for Education, for making this podcast happen. Now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Um, today I'm talking to Atul, Atul Tamunika, who is uh, the co-founder of the Global Schools Foundation of International Schools based in Singapore. Um, so I'm really interested to find out a bit about Atul's background, what he's done, and then get into a bit about um, international schools. I'm really always fascinated by the business of international schools, how people set up large groups, what the, what the whole environment is looking like globally. I know there's a lot of changes in this. So uh, Atul, um, thanks for coming and welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. And I'm delighted to be on this discussion. Great. Yes, yeah, so Atul, I mean, it'd be great to get into a bit of your background before, because I mean, I, I just sent you a connection request on LinkedIn, actually. I know um, your background uh, wasn't in education. You were working in IT uh, and, and you're originally from India. So it'd be great just to get a bit about your background, like where you're from, uh, what you did before you started Global Schools Foundation, and then we, then we can get into, you know, why, why it happened and, and what you're doing with it. Sure, sure. So very briefly, I come from a tech background. Uh, I have a 20-year uh, a experience prior to getting into education. And sure. uh, what was interesting was uh, I was living in Singapore, uh, and uh, there, were, there were a lot of, uh, you know, national important projects. Uh, which were being done in Singapore and technology. And, and as, a, as a result of casual social discussions that came about between various expat communities here was the, the important aspect of education. And uh, it was very clear from the discussions that there was a strong demand for something that can work as a high quality education, but can also meet everybody's and not necessarily the super rich, but also the people who are kind of, you know, super rich minus one, minus two kind of uh, income brackets in expatriate yeah. base. So that was the real trigger. Uh, it was a small experiment that I started in 2002. I had a, I had a friend of mine who was a cabinet minister and he, he chatted with the then minister of state for education, uh, asking him whether, you know, would he be welcoming any schools uh, in Singapore, because the international schools were heavily regulated here. And he said, yeah, you know, why not? I mean, there are, there are various, we are beginning to see a lot of expats coming in from different countries. Asia is a major supplier of, uh, you know, how white collar uh, people to us. And so we definitely welcome everybody and everybody to come and enjoy the education here, live here, enjoy the great location called Singapore, great national country. And that's how the discussion really went into, should we do it, should we not? I took a plunge, I took a risk, got into it with my own capital, said, let's do this and see whether it works for the next one or two years and maybe you know, hand over to some people who are professionally managing it. But I ended up you know, kind of you know, in the driver's seat in this, uh, not knowing fully well that you know, this is a long-term commitment. Uh, and then there has been uh, no looking back after that. And it's been a great journey. So you, so you started just one school initially? Is, is that how it began? That's correct. That's correct. In and you said you did it with your own capital, but I mean, you must, I guess you must have had a lot of money because, I mean, 
I'm presuming the startup cost, if you don't have any uh, any funding, any private equity or any funding behind you, I mean, obviously we're probably talking, I guess, millions to start a school in Singapore, given everything. So in, in a way, I would say you are right, uh, but yeah. maybe that was not really the applicable criteria in 2002 when I started this. Yeah. So it was easier to start a small school in a small community location, uh, in a former school location, which was not requiring uh, intensive capital because it was an existing building. But I think right. what is right today, what has become in Singapore or places like Hong Kong or Dubai, it's, it's a very capex intensive business proposition, but we yeah. probably were early stages and we had the benefit. Yeah, okay. So you were, and it's interesting because like, um, you know, when you look at, you know, ISC research, I'm sure you know that they, they kind of categorize international schools. You have the premium fee international schools, mid-market, you know, lower tier. And there's, and there's a real um, growth in it. I mean, you know, obviously companies like GEMS and North Anglia and Cognito have just got a huge number of schools. Like, we, what were you thinking? Were you thinking, um, you mentioned you're, you're from India. Were you thinking like, like Indian expatriates? Were you thinking locals? Were you thinking people on a certain fee income, like you mentioned, obviously, you know, it, it was a kind of lower, lower than the, the premium schools. Like what, what was your kind of idea of, of the kind of families and you would be attracting to the school? So, so this is a good question because, you know, uh, I think that defines the DNA of any organization. Uh, in our case, uh, what we realized was let's go to the community and ask them what works for them. Rather than we come up with a model and say, here's my school, Here's the product, here's the services, and this is what it will cost you. So I think it was a bit of a research, backward research. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, you know, ISC has various categorization of schools uh, falling into different brackets from super premium, premium, mid-market, and the low-cost schools. Yeah. So what we did realize is that it's not necessary for us to put super premium schools on day one. It's important to put a school that is welcomed by the community that is highly valued by the community. It meets their financial requirements. And so that was really the part of the DNA for us. And as a result, every location that we did a new school, we actually took a lot of community inputs into account, a lot of market research, and then we got sort of choreographed a school according to what those demands were. And in a way that was very good for us because that really drove a lot of word of mouth. It drove the strong sentiments that the consumers had the parents had towards the school that, look, this is designed for us. Uh, as opposed to saying, hey, this is a super premium school, this is for ultra-rich people, and I've got to go there. And as, yeah. as one leader has said, it's no difficult, it's not a difficult position for any ultra-rich to find a school. There, there are plenty of options for them. But do you have a reverse situation which do the you know, the mid part of the society who can afford a premium or a premium minus one, can they afford to go to ultra-rich schools? And that is not the case. So I think what we did was really a lot of discussions, a lot of inputs from society and communities, and we took that to configure the schools accordingly. So for us, I mean, it's, it's not a question of you must do a particular category of schools. We have all categories of schools. And what was your first school? I mean, yeah, I'm keen about the first one. What was your first school and, and what kind of parent, you know, families were you looking to attract with the first school when you got started? So the first school was really positioned as a moderate fee school, uh, which was a position towards the ASEAN expatriates. Of course, Indian expatriates were part of that, but I think by and large, we had a lot of neighboring country students here from Malaysia, 
Thailand, Indonesia, and yeah. our Philippines and, and uh, other countries here, Vietnam. So a lot of ASEAN students were really looking for value for money schools. Hmm. That's interesting. Do you think, like, do you see the, um, is that is that the biggest growth area of international schools, the kind of lower, lower fee type schools, uh, however you, you know, categorize it? I mean, it seems to me that's, that's the biggest growth, but I'm not sure if that's true. How, how do you see that? Well, uh, there are two aspects to it. One is the size of the pie, and second is the growth. Yeah. And there's no doubt the size of the pie of the moderate fee schools or premium schools is very big, much bigger than the super premium schools. But when yeah. it comes to the growth aspect, I think the growth is pretty much attached or depending on a particular site or a particular city or a particular yeah. curriculum. Depending on what combinations you would like to achieve, it will have a different trajectory. So, for example, yeah. if I were to say, is there a growth of a premium British curriculum school in, let's say, a city like Pune? Well, yeah. the answer could be that it could be a low digit, low double digit growth, or it could be a low single digit growth or high single digit growth. But what if I flip the curriculum to something else, which has a higher demand? And let's yeah. say I put a Indian national curriculum there with a combination yeah. of options on IGCSE curriculum. Will that give me yeah. a better option? And the answer is yes. So for the same location, the pricing mix, the curriculum mix, can actually change the growth levers. And so therefore, yeah. we have to be very careful in choosing this pricing and curriculum mix and defining who your final demographic is, because that will really depend, that will decide the growth. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I think... Um... You know, I think a lot of it is, especially in Asia, like what restrictions does the um, the country put on like local national sending their children to international schools? Like a lot of people say the reason for the huge number of international schools in Thailand, I mean, it's like 200 in Bangkok, depending on how you count them, is because there's no restriction on Thai families sending their children to an international school. But a lot of countries, you know, like you know, Taiwan, Korea, like um, uh, Vietnam, I guess there's there's a restriction like there's it's like you're either not allowed to send your children if, if you're a local national or there's like a, a cap of the percentage like does that make a big difference when you like what when how how many international schools end up coming to an area so one way to look at it is uh yes yeah, so i think countries like thailand there is no restriction on thai students coming in uh, but from what i know last was there was a some sort of a cap on that but i'm not sure whether the cap still exists Okay. However, compared to uh, Thailand particularly, so Thailand is a different demographics. Uh, each area in Thailand, whether it's a central Bangkok, whether it's outskirts of Bangkok, whether it's Phuket or Pattaya, or whether it is Chiang Mai, they have very, very different demographic demands. Uh, yeah. Even in Bangkok, there are several schools there, many British schools, many IB schools. But I think overall, sometimes what happens is certain markets do get the pricing and the curriculum mix right. And, yeah. and certain players do not get it right. So as a result, what happens is many of the schools that we've seen in Bangkok are probably capping at 400, 500 students, maybe depending yeah. on how premium the fee is or how premium the fee is. And yeah. maybe it's far more, uh, it's, it's much more of a volume game for a moderate fee points or lower fee points where they can probably go to 1,500, 2,000 students in a particular kind yeah. of space. So it's it's a very uh, different scenario depending on which where is the location, and uh, how is your how is your 
you know, curriculum and pricing mix. Yeah, interesting. What um, so how, so right now, how many schools do you have? Is it, is it twenty schools you have in the group? So over the last uh, two years, we've been a bit acquisitive. We have been acquiring schools in Asia, Southeast Asia, North Asia. So today we have thirty-five campuses. Thirty-five. Uh, wow. over thirty-two thousand students. Okay, and what and what what are what are the main countries you're in? Uh, so we are present in South Korea, Japan. Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand. Uh, we have uh, schools in UAE, uh, in India, in South Asia, and uh, we have schools in Saudi Arabia as well. Yes, yeah, fantastic. I'm actually just looking at your website now. It's uh, gso.info is your, is your website, isn't it? We, um, yeah, we actually work with some of your school. I didn't realize. Um, I saw everyone, you know, we're, we have a Google, we're a Google partner. We work with, um, Actually, we did work with Dwight School in Seoul. That's that's just changed, I think. But yeah, I recognize quite a few of the schools. How does it work with? Um, you're working with now. There's really, I'm really fascinated by the growth of the English branded private schools, and you seem to work with a few of these, like Nottingham High School, Dwight School, where you work with a or US or UK school and set up a local subsidiary. Could you go into a little bit about how, how that works, or is it, is it different in every arrangement, or how does that typically work? So I'm really, I'm really interested. In this kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think in terms of firstly, let me just clarify the Dwight School that we're talking about is only the Dwight Korea School. Uh, yeah. and, and Dwight Group is independent of the Korea School. But okay. uh, to, uh, in terms of new demographics, new countries, uh, it, it's in terms of, you know, there are, there are two types of growth opportunities, right? The acquisitions or the inorganic, and then you've got the green fields. So on green yeah. fields, we always have inbound inquiries. Sometimes we have governments calling in, uh, like recently we had the city of Osaka, uh, the government of Osaka actually uh, called us in and said they would like us to open a school in Osaka. Similarly, yeah. there are governments in Japan who are inviting us. So there are those which are green fields which happen naturally. Somebody invites us and we go and set up green fields there. There yeah. are sometimes green fields which are done by us based on pure market demand patterns available. And then yeah. you have the acquisitions which are taking place on an opportunity-by-opportunity basis, or sometimes there could be a process which is being run. Mostly these could be owned by families or by, car, yeah. or by houses or private equities, and they are kind of, you know, maybe passing it on to the next set of operators or owners to take the school to the next journey. And, yeah. and so we work with different opportunities, and for every country, every new opportunity, we look at all these aspects of Greenfield Plus acquisitions and see what best combinations work for us. It seems to me that most cases, um, I, I understood that like mo there's very few of the, of the English branded schools that actually manage them directly. I heard like Marlborough College Malaysia is the only one I heard about that actually directly manages the school from, from the UK. In every other case, it's like a, a local organization like yourself who, who kind of, you know, runs the school. Is that, is that your experience that most schools, there's not many schools from the UK or the US actually manage their overseas campuses? I think the issue with UK schools is because most of the legacy UK schools are formed as charities, right? Yes. They have restrictions on them. They have certain investment restrictions and considerations. And so I think given the, the state of the UK charity schools, I think it may be structurally not possible for them to manage everything on their own. But yeah. I, I don't know uh, there are certain UK schools, but we work with a school called Nottingham, uh, which yeah. is, in a way, it is kind of, entirely managed by us with guidance and mentorship from the Nottingham's teams. Uh, and yeah. then we 
time to have more Nottingham in Asia and Middle East uh, in the near future. But yes, uh, it's a combination of uh, what the schools would like to do, uh, how would they want to control the quality narrative in the schools, yeah. and uh, are they comfortable really? Because sometimes, let's say, if you're partnering with a real estate party uh, who do not have core competencies in education, they are not strategic school operators, then obviously it's a question mark for the UK schools to how much of decision making, how much of quality aspect of academics should I leave it to them or should I yeah, kind exactly. of it my hands? So, yeah, I mean, it's a group by group discussion and decision. And uh, it's really up to them to see what is the comfort level. With Nottingham, they have a huge comfort level with us because we already have 35 schools in the in the running and we've got lots of schools coming up in the next two years. So I think there for them, it's, it's more about, you know, let's be kind of, you know, mindshare, ideation, innovation partners, rather than be administrative partners. Yeah, where, where, where is your Nottingham High School or the first ones located at the moment? The first one's coming up very soon uh, in the Middle East, uh, yeah. outside of UK, and that should be, we'll be in a position to officially announce that in a couple of months. Okay, it's interesting. I spent a lot of time in the Middle East. Um, I presume, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it's, it's UAE, but I mean, there's also a lot of schools opening now in... Um, in, in Saudi uh, and, and Qatar and I'll go over, but it seems to me all of the UK branded ones have been in the UAE so far. It's more like specific ones in the, in, 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 uh, in Saudi and Qatar and uh, Bahrain as well. Even. Yeah. Um, all countries in UAE in, in the GCC are very active and then you yeah. uh, all the countries which are very active. And I think Qatar is one country, which is kind of, you know, leapfrogging from, having the World Cup uh, onto the Asian Cup. And I think there's going to be a lot of economic activity happening in Doha very soon. So I think all these countries are great destinations. I think Saudi Arabia is really going to be a huge growth for international schools. It seems to me, I, I was there at education conference this year and just, just, I mean, they're building new cities, you know, like it's, and they've really, um, previously it was very restrictive to visit as a foreigner. Now you can get a visa online, it takes two minutes, you know, and you can multiple entry visa. Um, it's just so easy to get there now. You know, I was surprised how how much has changed in the, in the last year. So I think that's got to be a and you know, and also foreigners can own can start businesses there now without local partners and things. So I think that has to has to be booming. I don't know what you think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely correct. And we also yeah. equally share the same views about Saudi because when we set up our school, one world international school there, it was kind of a breeze. You know, by the time. We, our colleague left the office, and by the time he reached uh, office in Riyadh, uh, yeah. you know, it was like in a matter of maybe less than 12 hours that the licenses were granted. So it was pretty amazing. Yeah. How do you find it? Because um, you're from an IT background, like as I am as well. Like, how, I mean, did you find it hard to to um, start schools without without having an education background? And and what, and how did you, how did you get, get over this, this kind of problem? Did you hire? you know, education leaders to work in your team or what, what was the thought process? Yeah, I think uh, the one of the things that I do realize is the fact that I was uh, having that, you know, sort of academic handicap uh, at the beginning yeah. uh, turning. And uh, to kind of hedge that, uh, you know, I, I leveraged on a few academicians uh, who were amazing educators. They had, you know, decades of experience, uh, I, I spoke to many educational institutions who have been there for, you know, like, like past five, six decades. And uh, yeah. having 
spoken to them, having decided to work with some of the educators. So we brought in some educators on a, I would say on a consultancy basis and on a much more advisory nature. And they got involved. They were very, very effective. Uh, they basically taught us all the nuts and bolts about school education and you know, how, what are the things that you should be looking for? What are the things that can go wrong? And, and so of that advice was very, very helpful. And, and I think by the time second year, we were in second year, uh, we, we already started leveraging on some very good talent. So one of the things that we've been always doing from the first year itself is to leverage on very good educators. Educators who yeah. have local experience, who have a very good qualification. Uh, they, may, they may exceed the requirements of the education departments uh, in terms of teaching qualifications, but we decided to invest heavily in people, heavily in education leadership, and also kind of, you know, do continuous training in them and, and leverage on those skills empowerment and leadership empowerment to basically build an organization that is pretty much driven by all the professionals in this particular field. And, and we have a great leadership that can take this journey to the next level. Do you think that, um, do you think schools that are run as like, as like, you know, for-profit schools can give the same education as, as not-for-profit? Or do you think it's, it's not even... Do you think it's other factors that are the most important factors with education? I, I would say, I would say it's the intent of the school that it intends yeah. to provide uh, in terms of what is it that the school really wants to deliver. So I think yeah. for-profit and non-profit are not relevant. What's more important, yeah. are you providing education for the long-term benefit of the child? Are you yeah. providing education that is giving them continuous learning improvements? And also looking at things in a long-term basis rather than be a very short-term financial decision about, oh, yeah, okay, this quarter, let's do this, get rid of this. And so if the DNA is like a private public company, then you've got a problem because many of the things that you invest in education are many times long-term investments. They may not yep. get you short-term results, but they get you long-term results. So I think I would particularly say that it's not so much of a non-profit versus for-profit. It's about having the right DNA of spending and looking at yeah. more long-term investments rather than short-term investments. Interesting. And your, I mean, your company is uh, organization structured as a not-for-profit. Is is that right? Or what was what was the thinking behind yeah. this? Like, and how, does, how is that is that a thing? Is that a Singapore like um, designation? Yeah, it's a, it's a what we call as a Singapore Trust and Foundation, uh, yeah. which is uh, a foundation by nature. Uh, so we don't have shareholders, and it's essentially a foundation. Right. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, I'm keen to talk about technology. That's that's my area, biggest area of interest. You know, um, what a because you know, you know, I know I know a lot of uh, IT directors uh, at international schools. Uh, a lot, a lot of them listen to this podcast, and you know, one thing I've heard from some. Uh, you know, groups of school groups, whatever the type of school group is, is like, you know, some school groups operate in a way where they they try to go for economies of scale. They say, okay, everybody's using Microsoft, everyone's using Google, everyone's using this LMS, this SIS, you know, this this um, platform. And some allow the schools to take all the decisions themselves, and then some have like a hybrid model. Like, what's been your thinking in terms of across your schools in terms of how you structure it? And the systems. So, I, I think this is where we have a, a slightly different thinking in terms of how education institutions think. Our thinking is that whatever is off the shelf 
is good for you for the next three years or four years. Yeah. And and yeah. if you really want to look at managing technology, managing data, and managing uh, these student learning outcomes on a long-term basis, I think what you need to do is really build yourself the entire technology platform. And this may not be realistic for many organizations because that's not their core competency. I think we've managed to kind of draw that little bit of distinction by bringing in our entire uh, technology under a proprietary platform, which is designed by our teachers, which is implemented by our internal software company, which we have. And then we use those products and services in our ecosystem of managing the schools. So when we yeah. talk about technology, I'm not just looking at the technology required to manage your fees and admissions and enrollments, your bus transport matters, your teacher-student communications, but we are, we are looking at every single aspect of the school, the classroom operations. We call the classroom as a nerve center. That's where the whole action happens. So everything, what happens in the classroom is actually then put through a process of ideation, innovation, and then we see what elements of technology can we bring in for the students and the teachers, which then can be making it easier for them. In A, delivering the lessons, in B, learning those lessons, in C, having a very good grip on what's going on in the classroom. So we believe that the future of the ed tech is going to be really what happens in the classroom and how you manage that. And we've, we've already started that journey. COVID was the big trigger for us. We, we, were, we were fully automated as far as our business processes were concerned, our administrative processes were concerned. We had all the direct links to the banks to collect the fees directly from the banking accounts. But now we realize that, hey, we need to really take this technological leap into a much more wider space, look at every single aspect of the school business, look at every single activity that happens between a teacher and a student, and let's automate that. And that's the journey we've already started. It's interesting. Um... I think I actually disagree with you on this point. I think it's good to have some disagreement on the podcast, you know, and we shouldn't agree on everything. You know, I, I think that, um, well, I agree with everything you've said about the uh, integrating the processes. I think that when I've seen schools that go for the approach you're saying where they build their entire system themselves, I think, in my opinion, it usually works out worse than getting the off-the-shelf systems because if, if you just take, you know, a standard SIS, you know, whether it's Veracross or PowerSchool, Sims, iSans, like they've done thinking you know they've got customers over over multiple countries multiple you know exam systems you, you take your standard you know whether, whether it's google classroom or, or another lms you know they've they've done this and most of them now if you as long as you get a system with good apis you that can talk to each other i think that i think that is that's what i see as, as the great success i think the problem is if you build it yourself you've got to keep everything so up to date with all the innovations and you know, to keep all everything, you know, your like you see your admission system, your, your classroom management system, all up to date to the level of all these other third parties is just hard because you're not a software company. You're building the software for yourself. So I'm curious what you think about that. Obviously, you know, I'd like you to disagree with me. It's good to have some debate. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, uh, let me put it this way. If you were to tell the schools or you were to share with the schools as to what they should be doing, and many have this major issues about you know, how do you go about decision-making in terms of choosing a platform going forward. Yeah. Um, I think the, the way they should look at is what can be more long-term and what yeah. can get the essential, the basic automation that is required to run the school. 
right? Yeah. I, I think they don't have to look at a full piece or a you know a full white elephant that will probably be you know automating every single aspect of their business. I think the key is to really get started small, yeah. get the right technology that you can sneak and go long term. The challenge yeah. with using heterogeneous technologies and you know, some of these technologies on their own are fantastic. Uh, if you talk about online exams with artificial intelligence, right, some of these are good. Some of these are assessment-based platforms, uh, which are giving you very good insights. But the challenge is you've got to really replicate the whole enterprise or the whole school on all these four or five platforms. And that's where the administrators or the teachers who are involved in managing them really have a hard time because systems don't talk to each other. I think what it means is if you want to enjoy a particular platform or a tech platform that is having a particular niche feature, it's fine, but do that with a clear understanding that it's not going to work or talk to your other systems, which means you won't get insights into what, if I were to use this assessment system, I were to use some other data intelligence system, and then if they were to talk to each other, I will get some wonderful insights, which would not come obviously. But I think one has to live with that and one has to be a bit more pragmatic in trying to choose the platforms. Uh, but I'll tell you one of the most scary things that educators find is really to select the platforms and to really decide on what they should be investing because they know they are wedded to it for the next 10, 15 years. Yeah, do you, so do you have, I'm curious what's, what are you using? Do you have any any um, standard systems or do you, everything's built yourself or do you have any, I'm curious like if you could tell me like if you are using any, any student information systems or LMSs, what, what kind of systems you're using or is it all developed in-house? So, so we use some systems from IBM, uh, but they are yeah. mostly financial in nature. Uh, yeah. and, and, but most of the academic related, operational related uh, platform that we have is fully proprietary and has been fully in-house in Okay. And do you use Google or Microsoft like for your email and document sharing and things? Well, the Google G Suite is used to some extent, but I think yeah. uh, the direction that we have is uh, is really to use the in-house platform, which is far more featured and it has a lot more advantages uh, as, as opposed to a Google Classroom. So Google Classroom does the basic elementary job of a teacher by you know getting you that collaboration between students and teachers. But I think uh, we've taken it like 10 steps ahead of that uh, and, and really making uh, high value added contributions to the students. Sure, interesting. Um, yeah, I'm curious, uh, what, um, do, what, what do you see like education technology and any trends you see coming just from, you operate quite a lot of schools obviously, so you see a lot of different things at different schools. Like, are you seeing any trends in terms of what's required in terms of education technology, more on like the teaching and learning side, not so much the back? you know, networking things. So I think teaching and learning side, of course, we will see much more uh, sophistication and advancement of the LMS systems that are in the market. Uh, we would also see some, uh, you know, analytics companies coming into the play where they would like to provide you proprietary insights into how the assessments are working or how the teachers are working or, you know, what are the insights that are required for you to kind of work on uh, making students more efficient in learning uh, and also you know, performing better in the assessments. So apart from that, we also expect a lot more new technologies to come in. For example, one of the technologies we have implemented is the uh, smart basketball. And what it does is uh, it actually has a very high intensity Bluetooth technology available, which is uh, 
you know, we so on a basketball courts are wide. So we use a small tag on the player. And uh, there is a tag inside the basketball as well. And it kind of real time captures the entire data of the game uh, in terms of how the how many passes have taken place, how many misses have taken place, which player has been performing at, at his peak, his or her peak, uh, what's the statistics out of the game, how can I use the statistics to further improve and improvise on that particular basketball player. So, so you, you developed a system in-house to do this just for your basketball? No, 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 no we didn't develop it. So we, we actually, oh, oh, I was going to say, that's, I was going to be very impressed. Said. <laughs> no, it's, it's yeah. a European system, but it's a kind of European oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. teams like LA Lakers. It's really interesting. Kind of, those, those leagues, uh, team, they do we use that? Something similar to this? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So I think we, we've used that. We've used similar analytics in soccer. So we, we yeah. do have a pretty wild soccer game uh, that can be played on the ground, all weather, and then we can capture all those statistics. But a good thing is students get instant statistics on their performance. Uh, yeah. So there's not too That's much great, of yeah. what a coach wants to do. It's about, here are the facts, guys, go and fix it. Yeah, exactly. You see that in professional sport, a huge amount of, um, you know, a huge amount of, of uh, computer science now in terms of, you know, like you said, analyzing the movements of the players, movement of the ball, um, everything. That that's, that's really, really fascinating. Um, look, that, that was really, really great to talk to you. Uh, obviously, we'll keep it to about about thirty minutes today. Um, do you? I'm going to be in Singapore actually. I, I, I'm going to be there for Edutech. Are you involved in Edutech uh, at all? Do you go? Uh, no, I don't think so. I'll be traveling, but uh, let me know what are the dates and we'll be definitely trying to catch up. Yeah, it's a big education technology trade trade fair, the biggest in Asia. In, it's in Singapore, actually, so I'm, I'm going to be there in, in two weeks. So uh, look forward to it. Like, what are, do, do you manage your group from Singapore or do you have like local local offices? Like, how, how does this, I, I don't know much about school management companies. Like, do you, does it all get done centrally or how does that work? Well, our headquarters are in Singapore. Uh, that's where we were yeah. founded. Uh, but our management teams are pretty much uh, distributed across various right. geographies, various countries. They're pretty independent management teams. That's great. Do you have like a remote team? And like post COVID, have you have you gone remote, or do you actually have offices, or do people just work work inside the schools? The management teams work in the schools. So some of our campuses were pretty much, uh, I would say, COVID ready. Like the one in Singapore, it was fully wired with Zoom uh, for all the classrooms. So we were able to kind of you know quickly roll out our virtual classes for the students and yeah. get the hybrid classes in quickly. Uh, but we don't have central teams. Uh, we do work with central, uh, we, we do work with distributed resources who are spread across different countries. They're subject matter experts. And uh, most of the virtual lessons during COVID were conducted by the class teachers themselves or the subject teachers of their respective campuses. So they were all on Zoom, all students were on Zoom and we were able to get all our classes virtually within a week or 10 days of the COVID, you know, breaking out in March of 2020. Great. Well, good to hear. Uh, I told it's been great to talk to you. Um, uh, and I really wish you all the best with your group. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, when you are here in, here in Singapore, give a shout. Let's try and catch up.